If I gave you 18 minutes to give people practical advice on how to live their lives, 18 minutes on a world stage to tell them the best way that you know how to live, where would you start? If you were given a TED Talk, what would be one of the first topics you brought up? Now, it's a little bit crude, but you could talk about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount like it's his TED Talk. It's short, it's punchy, it's memorable. He starts with who the blessed ones really are and surprises us with that. And then he goes on to the fact that we're the salt and, and the light of the world. And then he talks about the fact that he's not come to abolish tradition, but to fulfill it. And then he starts giving us a vision of what kingdom goodness, what righteousness really looks like. Practical advice on how to live our lives and where does he start? Anger. Not Bible reading. Not prayer. Not going to church or religious festivals. Not family, not money, not work. He starts with anger and contempt. Which is why Dallas Willard said that the first step in establishing kingdom goodness is dealing with our anger. This is what Jesus has to say. You can turn in your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and following. You've heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raha, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. If we've not met yet, I'm Ricky. I'm pastor of Community Life here at Summit Drive, and I'm excited to be sharing with you in our series about traveling lights which focuses on that invitation from Jesus. Come to me, all you who are wearied and burdened, and I will give you rest. And we can see from Jesus' own teaching that one of the primary burdens that we need to learn to deal with to enter into the rest that he offers us is our anger and our content, contempt. So today, we're going to start off by talking about the good and the bad of anger. Then we're going to move through kind of the two main problems with anger, that it makes us hasty and asks us to kind of hold on to the wrongs we've suffered. And then what we're going to do is we're going to end by talking about the fact that the burden we often place on ourselves, the heavy backpack that we carry that's not for us, is judgment, judgment over the whole universe. And what he wants us to carry is the light yoke of being cared for by our Heavenly Father. Now, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry. You might not like me when I'm angry either, but you know those words. You know where they come from. It's the mild-mannered Bruce Banner before he becomes the big green giant, the Incredible Hulk, and his pants magically grow to cover his bits, which is actually the most incredible thing that happens every time he becomes the Hulk, if you haven't thought about that. Hulk is actually a really fantastic symbol for anger. 
right? Because Hulk does incredible things. Hulk smashes the bad guys. The Avengers wouldn't be the same without him. But there's a problem with Hulk. Hulk likes to smash and ends up smashing far more than the bad guys, ends up destroying buildings, sometimes the people that he works alongside. When he starts seeing green, he lacks precision. And anger in us is kind of the same way. You know, I've been guilty before, as many people have, of saying that anger is like a secondary emotion, that it's something that's only triggered by something else. And that's part ways true. But doing some study this week, neuroscientists will tell you, we have dedicated circuitry in our brains and bodies for anger and aggression. There are pathways in our brains dedicated to it. Why? Well, because sometimes we need to defend ourselves. Sometimes we need to stand and fight. So our body has naturally occurring opioids that get released into our bloodstream that make us a little more impervious to pain. Adrenaline starts coursing through our veins to make us less tired and sharper and stronger and faster so that we can face problems that we need to face, like a mother being a, 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 having her young attacked by a tiger, standing up, right? And the other thing is, is that God, we're told in Scripture, also gets angry. So anger can't be altogether evil. What is it that God gets angry about? What is it that he hates? Proverbs six sixteen and following, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, a person who stirs up conflict in the community. God gets angry at injustice. His anger is not selfish. It's unselfish. It's injured love. He's angry at the ways that we hurt ourselves and other people. So in Matthew 5, Jesus cannot be saying anger is a sin. He cannot be saying don't get angry. We're made to do this and God does it. But he is pointing out that there is a maladaptive side to anger. There's something wrong with it. When we get angry, our vision literally narrows. The blood literally leaves the intelligent parts of our brains. We become primal. And anger in that situation also likes to smash. I don't know, has anybody ever played the Florida Man game? Have you heard of this? So what you do is you, put, you, get, you open up Google and you put Florida Man and then your birthday. And you get these crazy headlines of the, um, like, Stupid things that people from Florida have done. I'm not picking on Florida, but it's just, it's part of the game. Like, my favorite one was um, man who calls himself Baby Cakes drives lawn tractor through drive through at McDonald's, right? Crazy stuff. So put Florida man and anger into Google, and these are some of the things that you get. Strikeout. Florida man beats umpire at child's little league game. Florida man kills blue heron in front of his children, quote, because it made me angry when it swallowed my fishing bait. Florida man pulls gun on police chief's daughter for forgetting cream cheese on his bagel. Long list of guns being pulled in traffic. Florida man throws deli meat at a police officer. Florida man assaults someone with a chicken wing, gets 10 years, and on and on the list goes. These would be examples of when anger is maladaptive. When anger has us doing things that are kind of stupid and don't help us. Biblically speaking, and just wisdom would tell us that the two kind of main problems with our anger, with human anger, is that it's hasty and it encourages us to hold on to the wrongs we've suffered. So it's always dangerous to preach. It's a dangerous game because eventually you're going to have to get up and talk to people about something that you struggle with. And anger has been part of my journey. 
for a long time. I thought I kicked it, to be perfectly honest. I thought it was like flying high. And then uh, we got a puppy, and I started to train it. And I was like, nope, anger's still there. <laughs> and you could talk to my family, and they would say, you know, Ricky, when he was younger, he was a, he was a short fuse, small explosion kind of guy, right? Something could set him off. It would set him off quickly. He'd explode, but then it would be fine. He would, he would calm right down afterwards, kind of like a firecracker. And anger naturally kind of does this to us. It makes us hasty, right? Once that adrenaline starts coursing through your veins, anger, which is your body's threat response system, says, this thing that's coming at you, it's going to kill you. You need to stand up and you need to fight and you need to do it now. Take no enemies, no holds bar. And Jesus seems to be hinting at this in the first part of his passage when he's talking about name-calling. Rakah is a name that in Aramaic sounds like the word for empty. It's something like numbskull, right? And moray is the word for fool, which is where we get the word moron. And name-calling, if you haven't noticed, is rarely done in the first degree. Like very few people get in their cars on Monday morning, start driving, and think, when I get to work, I'm going to call my boss a bleep, right? It's not what we do. Name-calling tends to happen in those moments when anger gets a hold of us and we react quickly. And often we regret, regret it, right? And firecrackers, line one of them up, not a big deal. Line a couple hundred of them up and set them off. Line a couple hundred of them and set them off near like some dry grass or like a gas station. And boom, right? Our little acts of anger, if we let them build up, if we don't get them under control, can often have a setting off chain reactions that hurt us and other people. So what do we do about it? Well, one of my favorite kind of saints, modern saints, that I think has dealt with his anger very well is Fred Rogers. You would know him as Mr. Rogers, right? Children's show for decades. My wife and I, a few months ago, watched A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. You should just all go watch it. It's such a stunning film. And the plot of the film is that there's this journalist who's assigned to do a piece on Mr. Rogers. But this journalist is like this like, tough, gritty New Yorker, right? Like he's the type of guy that digs up the dirt and does smear campaigns. And he's kind of trying to poke at Fred the entire time, trying to find a chink in his armor, and he watches Fred one day just actually being a pastor to people. Fred Rogers was a devout Christian, right? So he's listening to people's concerns, telling them that he'll pray for them. And they actually show you scenes where he's laying by his bed, praying for people by name like he promised he would. And the journalist kind of sees him doing this and says, you know, all these people, all these problems, this show, that's got to be a big burden on you, Fred. Like, that's got to kind of... The pressure's got to get out somewhere, doesn't it, man? Like, what, what happens? How do you deal with it? And in his characteristic Mr. Rogers way, he responds, Oh, there are many things you can do with your feelings that don't hurt yourself or anybody else. Why? You can pound a lump of clay, swim as fast as you can, play all the lowest keys on the piano all at once. Boom, boom, boom. And, like, the journalist keeps, like, trying to nag him, and he's just like, bah, bah, bah. it's really, it's a great scene. At the end of the movie, though, the filmmakers do something awesome. They, they show you Mr. Rogers going through a normal day, right? Just a normal filming day. And at the end of the day, he sits down at the piano and starts to play a beautiful song. He's an accomplished jazz pianist. And as he's playing the song, people start to leave. And once everybody's gone, for just 30 seconds, he pounds on the lowest keys of the piano. Boom, boom, boom. And what the filmmakers are doing is they're saying, 
you know, this guy isn't some sort of genetic freak, right? This guy isn't just like some aberration that was born without any anger. He might have a talent for gentleness and compassion, but he has lived a life, cultivated a lifestyle where he takes space to process his anger, and he's become, because of that, one of those everyday miracles as a follower of Jesus, somebody who can take extreme pressure and not crack. You know, James gives us some really fantastic words on anger in James chapter 1, 19 and following, where he says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. So implicitly, James is setting up a dichotomy between God's anger and human anger. And and the key phrase there is actually in the very name that God gives himself, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. So part of the goal in dealing with our anger is learning how to put the brakes on a little bit and be more like God. What does God's slow to anger look like? Well, think of the story of Abraham. Abraham is visited by God in Genesis 18, and God is angry. God is angry at Sodom and Gomorrah, and he says, I'm going to destroy those cities. And Abraham says, but God, what if there's 50 righteous people there? And he's like, you know what? If there's 50 righteous people, I won't do it. And Abraham literally barters with God, talks him down to 10 people. Turns out there's not even 10 righteous. It does get destroyed. But then there's Moses. Moses comes down the mountain after receiving the law to see the Israelites worshiping a golden calf. And Yahweh says to Moses, look, leave me alone. Let my anger burn. I'm going to destroy them. And Moses essentially stands before him and says, like, how about you don't? And Yahweh's like, yeah, okay, I won't. Or all throughout the prophets, you get these descriptions of how God's going to bring wrath, but then he says, if you repent, if you turn, it will be mitigated. See, God can be in his anger and still be able to listen to people, can still reason, can still mitigate his anger, turn it off in a second. And his anger is always at injustice. It's never selfishly motivated. So part of what we're trying to do, trying to learn to be is like God, People who can feel and experience their anger, who can listen to that threat response system saying, hey, something's wrong here. But then depending on our capacity, if we find we fly off the handle, maybe just taking that space, pounding that lump of clay, going for that swim, taking up boxing, whatever, finding a way to deal with those feelings so that we can come back with a clear head. Because as Dallas Willard has once said, there is nothing that can be done in anger that can't be done better without it. So learning to slow down by taking space. So there are people who might, you know, say the occasional bleepable word or flip the occasional bird. Not me, you, maybe. But then there are people who you anger who will find out what your favorite ice cream flavor is. They'll find out what grocery store you shop at. They will go to that grocery store. They will buy all the ice cream in that store. And then they'll save up their money, they'll buy the company that makes your favorite ice cream. And then they'll mismanage it so it goes bankrupt, so you can never have that ice cream ever again. Okay, probably nobody goes that far, right? But the second half of what Jesus is talking about are these kind of long-standing grudges, 
these kind of the friction that happens between us in close relationship, that those little sparks that can hit the dry grass, as we know all too well, and be fed and burn and grow and grow and grow until, like, you haven't talked to one of your family members for, like, 15 years, right? We could call these forest fires. And again, as we all know too well, those are very destructive. This type of anger, um, technically, you might actually call contempt. It's when we treat people as less than human because we don't like the way they've treated us or we've somehow can, like, held on to a wrong. And that's really what sets it off, right? Contempt, as opposed to this like, hasty anger, it requires consent. It requires actively holding on to the wrong that we've suffered and just like adding fuel to the fire so that it can grow and grow and grow until it kind of destroys us and other people. And it's this type of anger that... Paul probably had in mind when he gave us some of the most famous advice on anger ever in Scripture, the best description of it. In your anger, do not sin. This is Ephesians 4.26. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. So first, in your anger, do not sin. Again, Paul's making that distinction. Anger is not a sin. You can be angry, just don't let it become a motivation to do wrong and to hurt others and to sin. But this second piece, this don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, is Paul essentially saying, like, this is so important, it should almost be a daily ritual of just, like, stopping, taking stock, and asking myself, am I holding on to some wrong I've suffered today? Am am I grasping something? In fact, Jesus seems to be making a, a kind of a similar point in his little saying on reconciliation. He's saying to people who are in Galilee, If you're going to Jerusalem to make your offering at the temple and you remember there that somebody might be mad at you for some reason, leave that little lamb in Jerusalem and walk 80 miles back to Galilee to reconcile with your brother and then walk 80 miles back to Jerusalem and offer your offering. Right? It's like that scene where Simba finally accepts that he's going to be king and he's like running through like the Sahara, and there's like that inspirational African music playing, or like in rom-coms, right, where somebody's like, I don't know, sitting somewhere in New York and remembers that they actually love this person, and they go running through the rain. It's one of these things that's saying, hey, this is too important, this is too desperate for you to just like let it go by. Deal with it, and deal with it now. And Jesus actually even encourages us, I think, to pray daily in this way, pray for our daily bread, but as by extension, pray daily, forgive us our debts, as we forgive those who are indebted to us. Let go. Now, you can take this totally literally if you want, but just, like, I've met some people who, you know, they're, like, married, and they'll, like, be laying down, and one will say something dumb to the other one, and then they, like, make a pot of coffee and stay up till 5 in the morning. Fighting at 5 in the morning is not a good idea. I don't think you have to get that literal. But the point is, don't let it lie. Reconcile. Deal with it as soon as you can. Why? Why is this so desperate? Why is this so important? I don't want to get like freaky or scary here, but Paul gives us insight to how the demonic works in this passage. He says, when you hold on to anger like this, you're like building a ladder into your heart for the devil. And that's how he gets into our families, our cultures, our cities, our countries. When people just hang on to and build up this contempt and this rage. And don't believe me? Go read Hitler's life story. One of the angriest men in like all of history 
right? Served in World War I, saw what happened to his country, and just held on to that rage and let it build until it burned half the world. So we got to learn to let go. How do we do it? Some just really practical, like a recipe for letting go, a parfait of forgiveness. Three layers. The first and most important layer, and the one that I think sometimes we miss, is letting go of vengeance. See, Jesus will tell the disciples later, hey, if somebody hits you on one cheek, turn the other cheek to them so that they can hit that one too. He's saying let go of that fleshly natural impulse to get even with the ones that have hurt you. That's what vengeance is. You've hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you the same way or worse. And the most basic layer of forgiveness is this. I think this is what Jesus means when he says, if you don't forgive, you're not forgiven. Are you hanging on to that vengeance? Are you looking for that way to get even? That is not the way of Jesus. Jesus breaks the cycle of redemptive violence by taking all the sin of the world upon himself. And most of us, in my experience, when people come to talk to me about forgiveness, most of us are actually doing this. Like, most of us aren't out there trying to get even with the people that have hurt us. You can make this decision within a day. It doesn't take a ton of work and, like, counseling and stuff to get to the point where you're going to say, you know what, I'm going to work to live Jesus' way, and I am not going to hurt this person back. And just to put a pin in something else, though, because I've come across situations like this, too, vengeance and justice are different things. Okay, vengeance is you've hurt me, I will hurt you the same way or worse. Justice is for the rehabilitation of the perpetrator and for the protection of society. So, you know, you hear those stories of those mothers who, like, their sons are killed in a drunk driving accident, and they go to that that person who was driving and they forgive them. But they still let them have the charges pressed against them. They still let them go through prison or the rehabilitation program they need to go through. That's still forgiveness, right? Because that other stuff, that's about justice. That's about them rehabilitating and protecting society, right? Second layer. This is a tricky one. This comes just a lot from personal experience, but um, this is letting go of thoughts about the wrong suffered. And this will show up probably the most in your close relationships, right? You hear, you know, counselors talk about this like the always and never language, right? Your spouse or roommate leaves a sock out and you see it and where does your brain go? Where's, what's the tape play? They always do this. Man, they're good for nothing. Oh, they're always forgetting. They never take care of me. You know what? They forgot my birthday last year and our anniversary. And, right? like, and it just spins out of control. Right? And this is why, unfortunately, you sometimes hear, and if this has been your story, I'm so sorry, but you hear of those people who have been through divorce, and they say, you know, you ask them, what was the conversation that started it? It's like, I don't know. I forgot to put the coffee on one morning. I left a sock out, and then it just, we ended up here, right? Because it wasn't about that one thing, right? Paul tells us, love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. The joke my wife sometimes makes there is, love does keep a record of rights, though, but... So... We need to do what Jesus is asking us to do and be a people who are good at reconciliation, right? Jesus is encouraging people to actually be able to go to someone and say, I think I've hurt you. Tell me how I've hurt you. Or to come to somebody and say, hey, you know, when you did that thing, it made me angry. We need to talk about it. 
And then if you deal with it and if you forgive each other, to try and be like Yahweh who casts our sins as far as the east is from the west, who literally erases them from his mind so that the next time something comes up, you're not fighting the fight of everything that's ever happened for all time. Now, if you're dealing with like trauma or abuse or something where it's a situation where you can't reconcile or it's not safe to do that, dealing with thinking patterns and stuff like that, that's, that's definitely a place where you want to go see a professional and work through that. Third, final, letting go of feelings. This is where a lot of people, I think, start when we talk about forgiveness. We think we're like not living in forgiveness if we just like aren't happy all the time or like when we see that person, we like don't get angry or something. I think this last layer is kind of like a garnish. I think Jesus wants freedom for us. He wants us to get to the place where we can remember some of the things that have happened that are bad or we can be around people that have hurt us and like work it out. Reconciliation is the ideal, but it's not always the real. And we might not get to that level until eternity comes. I think if we're dealing with the I'm not going to get revenge on this person consciously or unconsciously and we're working on how we think and live and taking those thoughts captive, Sometimes the feelings will follow, sometimes they won't. But I think it's not the place to start. And if you've been putting pressure on yourself to start there, I I would encourage you just to release yourself from that. So all of that probably sounds like a heavier burden in some ways. Like this this is not easy. Everything in our flesh and heart and bones and marrow will say, if somebody has hurt me, I need to hurt them back. I need to make sure that this can't happen again. I need to to do something that will make it so that this never happens again. You know, Jesus offers us this light yoke, but Dave reminded me this week, there's, there's one other place where Jesus puts something on our shoulders in the gospel. And that's when he places the cross on our shoulders. When he says, pick up your cross, carry your cross, and follow me. Right, the, the shape of the light yoke of Jesus is cruciform. The cross and the light yoke, paradoxically in a mystery that I don't fully understand, I think are actually the same thing. Because the burden that we carry, the, the soul-crushing, back-breaking burden we carry when we live in continuous anger and contempt is the burden of being the judges of the universe. We place ourselves on the seat at the center of the cosmos and say, yes, I I can do it. I can make it all right. I can balance the scales. I can protect myself. I can make everything the way it needs to be if I just like keep this anger, keep this energy, and destroy anybody who gets in my way. And that is a burden that is too heavy for us to carry. We were never meant to carry it. We were never meant to go through these things alone. Because Jesus set an example for us. Jesus set an example for us of how we can actually move through some of the wrongs we've suffered. And Peter writes about it in 1 Peter 2, 21 and following. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. The light yoke of Jesus is the relationship he has with his father. 
The burden we are supposed to carry is the lifestyle and relationship and way of Jesus, a way in which we have a heavenly Father who will take care of us, a heavenly Father who will judge justly in the end. Vengeance is not ours, it is His. And Jesus taught us that this Father, this Father that we pray to, will take care of our reputations even if people slander us will take care of the love that we need, even if people have done things that make us feel unworthy of it. He will take care of the clothing we need like he does for the lilies. He will take care of the food that we need like he does for the sparrows, even if people cheat us. Jesus literally said, blessed are the ones who are persecuted, who are insulted and reviled for my sake. Rejoice and be glad. Your reward is great in heaven. We have a Father who will take care of us by raising us again with new life, even if people break and destroy and ultimately kill our bodies in this one. The burden we are to carry, which is difficult to get into, but is more abundant and more free than you could possibly imagine when we finally accept it, is entrusting ourselves to the one who judges justly. The worship team can come up. You know, maybe you're here today, And anger has been destroying your life. Maybe it's, maybe you've lost a job. Maybe it's burning up a relationship. You know, anger, again, is not evil. It's your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, possibly even the spirit of God saying, hey, something is wrong here. Something sacred has been transgressed. But then Jesus holds up another way to deal with it. Jesus offers us another way to go, the way of self-sacrificial love, the way of trusting ourselves into the hands of the one who judges justly. So we're about to do the very thing Jesus described in this passage. We're about to make an offering, about to make an offering of worship, which is an opportunity for us to do what he said to do, to stand and examine our hearts. And maybe somebody needs to get extreme and we need to like run out of this room, get in the car and drive somewhere right now and say, I'm sorry to someone or say, hey, we need to talk. Maybe we need to get the phone out and send a text message. You have permission to use your phone just for this one time, for this one song, for this purpose. Don't do it again. Um, You know, or maybe it's time to get the phone out and make that appointment. Maybe there is something you've suffered that can't be reconciled, that you feel you can't let go of, that is affecting your life. Whatever the case, Jesus wants something for us, an abundant, a full, a rich life, where we don't hold on to the need to judge the universe, where we can let go of our anger and content. It's there. His Spirit will guide us, He will give us the power. He will give us the strength. So the question is, will we take him up on it?